All right, church, I invite you to top up your coffees and come on back to your seats. Sorry to interrupt your conversations. It's a beautiful part of what we do at Jericho Ridge in terms of being able to connect. I love it. We're going to do just a couple items, family news, uh, and then we'll get into uh, uh, teaching time with David, one of our elders. Looking forward to that. Before we do that, though, let me highlight a couple of things. First of all, thank you to all of you who went to uh, Wagner Hills Women's Campus yesterday. I heard there was a group of about 20 uh, right from small, small to, Brad, were you senior there? No. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just a good time. So, so thank you for that. Our next one is coming up in maybe August. Okay. <laughs> and uh, so we look forward to that. A couple things coming up. As Brad already mentioned, next Sunday, just want to make sure we're not anywhere around the LEC. We're at Derby Reach. 10.30 at the Marpole Picnic uh, Shelter. You can't miss it. It's the only picnic shelter that you can see from the parking lot. So come on out. We're going to have baptisms uh, in, the, uh, in the river. And, uh, and then we'll celebrate with a barbecue. And so we're just looking forward to a good time for that. And so invite friends and family and uh, come spend uh, the morning. And if you want to stay the afternoon, you'd be welcome to do that as well. If you are available to help out with the barbecue, uh, like on-site, helping just set up stuff. Uh, my wife, Sylvia, in the back there. Sylvia, wave your hand. If you can talk to her, she's in the back there, and just say, hey, I could help out setting stuff up or anything, that would be great. Or if you'd like to do the grilling, that's something that we still need uh, a person for. Uh, someone who doesn't ma mind smelling like uh, barbecue afterwards, that would be great as well. Yes? Yeah, that's a, that's a good thing. If, if the weather is nice and it being Canada Day, you might want to come a little bit early. There is the main parking lot, which is relatively small, and then they have sort of an overflow parking lot, and then it gets crazy after that. So, uh, so yeah, so hopefully. And don't forget to bring a lawn chair as well. That was the other thing we wanted to say. So we don't, we don't want to have you show up and not be able to park and then not be able to stay. So, yeah, that would be good if, you, uh, if that's a concern for you. Uh, summer, uh, in summer, Kids at the Ridge transitions to Sunday Cinema, and we want to thank you guys. You guys have been signing up uh, well. There's still a few spots left for that. Uh, that's uh, in the nursery and in the preschool to grade one class. Uh, and uh, if you are uh, interested in that, uh, especially parents of kids, opportunity for our regular teachers to have a break during the summer. Uh, but anybody would be welcome to sign up for that. You can talk to Jenna. You can go on your app. Uh, right now, you can sign up there. You can sign up in the back as well. And then one other thing that we need summer volunteers for is uh, coffee. Sheila is standing in the back right there, everybody. She's with a sign-up sheet. We love our coffee. And as much as we try to get our coffee people to not take any vacation time in the summer, they still seem to want to do that. And so uh, when they're gone, we need somebody else to step in. It's very easy. Sheila trains you. Um, how to make coffee if you've never made it. You don't have to be a coffee drinker to do it. Uh, and uh, so if you could sign up with her, I think we've got about three weeks left in the summer that we need Sundays. So um, that would be awesome if you could do that as well. And then the last thing, the McCarthy family, uh, who are missionaries in Papua New Guinea, arrive home tomorrow morning. 
And so we're excited about that. They'll be here all next year. We want to bless them as a church. And so we have been uh, inviting you to pick up gift cards for gas, groceries, Starbucks, maybe, you know, fun events for their kids while they're here. So then, and we want to bless them and, uh, and help them settle back in and uh, take some of that load off of them uh, when they first arrive. So you can do that. Um, you can get them to, to us as staff. Uh, you can get them to us at the church office as well. And then on July 8th, I think it is, we'll pre- present them to them. So, yeah, we're looking forward to that as well, to welcoming them home. The other great thing that happens in summer is camp ministries. Literally thousands of kids across our province will uh, go to camp, and hundreds upon hundreds will make decisions for Christ. And uh, we have the privilege of sending out uh, a number of people from Jericho. And we want to just pray for them and commission them and uh, bless them as they go this summer. So I'm going to invite uh, Evan and Irene and Nathaniel and Timothy to come on up. Bayer, they are going to be serving at various times at Camp Kakwa this summer. I'm going to invite Jared and Pastor Brad to come on up. They're going to be serving at uh, Camp Bob on the island. Is Danny still? Danny is here. Danny's going to be serving with Scouts Canada. He's going to be a leader at Camp McLeod. No, McLean. Uh, And uh, the only person that's missing is Pastor Mike. He's going to also be serving up at Camp uh, Kakwa one uh, one of the weeks as a guest speaker. So so just very quickly, I'll give you the mic. Tell us uh, quick the camp, even though I said it already, camp you're going to and what you're going to do there, and then we'll pray for you guys. I'm going to speak at the 11 to 13-year-old camp uh, starting July 8th. I'll be working as a CLT in the cabins at Camp Bob. Hello, I'm a camp nurse for three, maybe four weeks up there. Uh, I will be doing work crew for two, three or four weeks. (laughs) I'm going to Camp Kakwa as uh, lovely displayed on my shirt. Uh, I'm going to be a cabin leader, which I just love doing that. It's going to be for the full summer, so eight weeks. Um, can't wait to get started. I will be doing kitchen staff all summer. I'll be a cabin leader for two to three weeks. And I should also mention Rachel Cottrell is going to be up at Rockridge this summer as well, right? Anybody else that we don't know about? Anybody sneaking away up to camp? Okay. It's awesome. Let's pray for this crew and bless them and as they uh, head out this summer. So if you just want to extend your hand out and uh, let's pray for this team. Father, we thank you for the opportunities that uh, across our province this summer, uh, we think of all the various kids camps uh, that are gearing up right now, training staff and, and prepping. And uh, Lord, their heart's desire is for kids to come and experience your love and your peace Uh, and to uh, get to know your son, Jesus. And Father, we thank you for each one of these uh, people standing up here representing Jericho Ridge who have uh, given time and committed um, their their gifts to various camps. And Father, we want to bless them, and we want to pray, Father, that your spirit would uh, work powerfully through them. Father, we pray that whether they're working in the kitchen, whether they're uh, in training, or whether they're uh, the keynote speaker, or anything in between, Lord God, we, we ask, Lord, that you would bless them with health and with strength. We 
pray, Father, that they would be instruments that you would use to convey your love and your, uh, the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, to the kids that they encounter. And so, Father, would this summer across our province, in all the various Christian kids' camps, uh, uh, would, would there be a, a, just a beautiful, beautiful harvest um, as you pour your heart into the lives of kids and as you do that in staff and counselors as well. We just uh, pray blessing on this summer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Hopefully we'll have opportunity at the end of summer to have some of you guys share some of your stories. I want to ask uh, Sandy and Muriel, and uh, if they'd come at this time, we're going to uh, prepare to receive the offering. And, uh, and just a reminder that uh, part of our heart at Jericho is uh, oriented towards generosity, and so a part of what you give, we actually give that towards summer camping ministries. So you're a financial participant in making that possible and in uh, helping to really grow and expand that ministry. As a denomination, we have five camps spread all throughout the province, and they just do phenomenal work uh, throughout the course of this season. So as Pastor Wally mentioned, let's keep them in our prayers. Uh, the other piece I want to just mention for us is uh, Steve is heading out this week. Steve and Allie are one of our uh, supported workers, and Steve's heading to South Africa. And you're actually going to bump into... Um, uh, the workmans who headed out uh, with Wycliffe as well from Jericho. So can you just give us a little insight? What's going on there, uh, and how can we pray for you? Okay, yeah, I'm going to be uh, in Cape Town, South Africa, for uh, two conferences back-to-back, um, giving a paper at each. So it's just work. Um, <clears throat> I might, might get to one or two vineyards, I don't know. Um, and the workmans are going to be there as well. Uh, for them, it's more of a kind of exploratory uh, trip, um, they are committed to, to head to South Africa as their base for work with Wycliffe. Um, and Cape Town is uh, likely to be the place where they're going to be uh, staying. And so um, they're moving in November, but they're making this trip just to, um, you know, check things out, maybe uh, start looking for accommodation, that kind of thing. Um, so it'll be good to meet up with them. Um, yeah, so just uh, pray, that, uh, especially for the workmen, so that they'd have... Um, good connections uh, in this time uh, as they um, get to know Cape Town a bit. And, uh, yeah, I pray that I would, yeah, not mess up my papers, I guess. <laughs> not drink too much wine. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Lindsay, can I bring the microphone to you? Can you pray for, uh, just pray, <laughs> pray for Steve and for uh, travel and for family while Steve's gone and then pray for uh, Jesse and Stephanie Workman, their family as well. Um, Lord God, thanks so much for Steve and Ali and their family. We just love them and are so thankful um, that they get to be a part, or we get to be a part of their community, Lord. I pray for Steve as he travels, that <clears throat> all the connections would go smoothly, and that you would give him rest even as he flies, Lord, and that when he arrives, um, that he'd just be able to engage really well at his conferences, that the presentations would go well, and that people would be encouraged um, as they serve with Wycliffe and for Jesse and Stephanie as they head overseas too. Uh, Lord, it's so cool that they get to meet up and spend some time together. So I pray for them that you just open doors, um, whether it's for accommodation or schools or um, care for Teddy, just all the things that they need to sort out moving their family across seas. So thanks that they get to meet. Pray for Allie and the kids as they're home. And without Steve, that you would give her great wisdom and lots of peace as Steve's away. So thanks, Lord. Amen. Amen. 
Well, you're really getting uh, a sense of a heart here at Jericho. Part of our uh, deep heart is for the nations and for what God is doing in different parts of the world. And so recently returned from Uganda is David and Denise McFarland. And uh, David teaches at Pacific Academy in uh, the BA program, the IB program rather there, and uh, is a part of our elders team. And so one of the things that the, that the scriptures uh, talk about when they talk about elders is that elders are able to teach. And uh, sometimes we teach through the way in which we live and teach through our example. And sometimes we teach in formal settings as well. And so David has a classroom which he teaches in. And so David, we're just going to invite this to be your classroom today as you come up and share with us what God's put on your heart. So welcome. I don't usually have one of these on. But good morning, Jericho. It's great to be back. Um, probably the, some of the farthest distance that uh, Denise and I have traveled. And uh, yeah, so many stories. And uh, we, we flew back in on Tuesday afternoon and people just said, how was it? How was it? And to reduce it into a soundbite is, uh, is really difficult. But it was incredible. It was eye-opening in many, many ways. So I thought I would... Um, we have our guy behind the behind the curtain, literally. So thank you, Kevin, for uh, for doing the slides. Um, we're in a we're in a series called the Bible doesn't say that, and I missed a couple of them. I still have to catch up on those uh, those sermons, but they're. Uh, it's a fun little series before we start the summer. And uh, I thought I would begin though by saying, even though our series is called things that the Bible doesn't say, um, I'd like to start with one thing that the Bible does say. And uh, that is go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. And uh, so Denise and I had the tremendous privilege of leading a team. Did they make it up there? Yes. Um, nine students. Um, we said we traded one three-year-old for nine teenagers. So I don't know. Um, but they were fantastic. The team really gelled. And there we were at the, uh, at the equator and serving uh, alongside them was a tremendous experience. Um, we were at a school called Chibali, which is in rural Uganda, right down by the Tanzanian border. And uh, so we spent time mostly with primary students. Um, I snuck away one time to the secondary school, and I said, I, I literally said, I just want to observe. That's all I want to do. And uh, so I was observing at the back, and the teacher was going on. I was about to say droning on, but it kind of was droning on. Like, it's just, it's pretty rote. They're, they're just dictating, writing stuff down on the Anglo-Boer War and colonization. And all of a sudden, I was just sitting at the back, and the teacher said, oh, now you, now you teach. You're a visitor. You teach. And so I got a piece of chalk, and uh, actually, there were about 50 pieces of chalk were brought to me, and I said, I'll be here all day, and I uh, just started, started teaching what I knew, and it was a lot of fun. So then grabbed a mug and uh, headed over. They have porridge at 10 o'clock every day and kept talking to the students, and that was, that was a true highlight for me. But anyway, clock is ticking. I want to I dive into uh, a topic that I'm sort of passionate about, and uh, hopefully we can wrap up this, this series on a strong note. I was thinking through some of the series that we've been through here at Jericho. Um, a, a recent teaching series last year on the kingdom, the shape of the kingdom, uh, how it's already and it's not yet, and we've been singing about uh, God's kingdom. Uh, we did a series last fall on, in the book of Revelation, and we talked about the, like, to reveal 
what apocalyptic actually means. It means to reveal, and it's a subversive challenge to imperial power. You might remember uh, that whole sort of the, the subtext or the, the, the not-so-hidden meaning of Revelation, declaring a challenge to imperial power, declaring that the Lamb is on the throne. Jesus is Lord, and therefore Caesar is not. Uh, in the past few years, we've been doing an Old Testament, a series through the Old Testament, um, sort of systematic, and we've been talking about God at work among a particular people, the children of Israel and prophets and priests and kings. And uh, so today, as we wrap up what the Bible doesn't say, I want to talk a little bit about nationalism and the idea of nations being Christian and the, the whole conversation around what the role of the state is and uh, how the church is to function within it. Now, there's some very obvious examples. Um, it's almost, I have to admit, it's almost too easy, and I don't want to, I don't want to derail my, my conversation into uh, what would better be, you know, fit onto my Twitter feed. And so you can follow my Twitter feed and see what I talk about. But there's a lot of examples of, of Christianity and uh, a strong sense of, of Christianity and of nationalism that really are declaring Caesar is Lord. Um, do I have this? Yes. Um, Brian Zond, a, a pastor who I, I follow and listen to a lot, he's in the, in the Bible Belt and uh, speaks quite prophetically into that situation. And he, he spoke of these flags that he sees everywhere in his own country, often outside of churches. And it would be, in his context, it's the American flag and then uh, this Christian flag that flies just below it. And uh, there's sort of this seamless fusion together. And he says, if you think that the placement isn't significant... Try flipping the flags and see what happens. If you were to put the, the, the Christian flag on top and have the, the nation uh, below in that context uh, would be really challenging. Like I said, I'm going to sort of skirt around the U.S. context. I want to talk about Canada and Canada, uh, our perception of it as a Christian nation. Um, but I, I, one final thing. I'm actually sharing uh, the, the pulpit, as it were, um, uh, what's called Freedom Sunday. And I don't have, a, I don't have a, a billboard, I'm not on a national broadcast, I don't have the ear of the president, um, and I don't want I, I to hit too hard, but this is, this is something that I've been, been noticing. Um, Dr. Robert Jeffries is the, the pastor of a large church in Dallas, and uh, he's actually speaking, I probably spoke just an hour ago, on America as a Christian nation and broadcasting this to the world uh, and to his nation. Uh, he's an outspoken culture warrior. Um, I, would, I would be as strong to say that this is actually idolatry. There's, a, there's a, a sense of the nation taking priority. It's imperial religion, and I would call someone who I, I assume is a brother in the Lord that this is actually a chaplaincy to empire, and uh, the Bible speaks harshly against this. But I want to turn our attention north. So I want to talk about Canada. If I were making a historical argument, maybe I am, maybe I'm not, um, I could argue that Canada's development has actually been far more Christian uh, than our high-octane, religiously saturated neighbors to the south. Um, and I'm going to give a couple of examples of how this actually works. However, I'll give you my, my thesis at the outset. Here's my, here's my claim. I don't think that, that this should actually be the goal of followers of Jesus 
in a beautiful country like Canada uh, that, that we should take, um, that, that we should sort of rest on our laurels that this is a, a Christian nation been, been founded on Christian principles or something like that. And yet the influence is there. And so I want to point out three things, and these are probably pretty obvious things that you would, you would notice, and that is, this is where it's different from our neighbors to the south who, who do see themselves largely as a Christian nation. Our national anthem includes, God keep our land glorious and free, and I'll join many people and proudly and happily sing that next uh, Sunday, celebrating Canada Day. Um, for those of you who took social studies, and that's where I spend most of my time, you might know that our Constitution, the Canadian Constitution, has a preamble, a little blurb at the beginning, and it exp explicitly states, whereas Canada is founded upon principles that recognize the supremacy of God and the rule of law. Both are good things. I, I, the supremacy of God, check. The rule of law, I'm really into uh, that as well. Uh, this, these are good things, and it's, it's actually encoded right in our Constitution. But the one I, I'm really interested in, I'd like to focus on, is actually at the, the foot of the Peace Tower in Ottawa, in our Parliament buildings, etched literally into the sandstone, uh, is a motto. I'd kind of forgotten that Canada, it's actually an official motto. It was a Presbyterian pastor, minister, his name was George Monroe Grant in the 1920s, um, who advocated and was an advisor to a prime minister, and uh, this became our motto, uh, that he shall have dominion also from sea to sea. So if you've ever heard that phrase, from sea to sea, you might have also heard now, we've, we've changed a little bit because we recognize, for those of you who know geography, we have another ocean on top, so sea to sea to sea. But this is actually, this comes straight from the Psalms. It's Psalm 72, verse 8. Uh, one person's actually called these things, I think our anthem, I think literally this little preamble at the beginning of our Constitution I think of the literal words etched at the, at the base of the Peace Tower in Ottawa. These are what one uh, commentator has called crater marks of the gospel in our society. In, you might call this Western civilization. It's there, it's, in, it's sort of in the DNA of the founding and the formation, some of the ideas that inspired the creation of nations like Canada. So I want to think just a little bit about the idea of belonging to a nation, what it means to belong to a nation. And then what I want to do is actually read Psalm 72 in its entirety with you and see the context of what, uh, what Scripture would have, what I think it has for us today and for us uh, as believers who live in Canada. A historian and a uh, political scientist named Benedict Anderson, uh, he coined this helpful little phrase called imagined communities. And this is what how I freely admit when I throw a book title up, oh, and it's there, um, I, I like steal little parts out of it. I've read the intro and I've read uh, the, the important chapter about imagined communities and he's talking about nationalism. He says this, a nation is imagined because the members of even the smallest nation will never know most of their fellow members, meet them, or even hear of them. Yet in their minds, each lives in the image of their communion. 
this idea of an imagined community. To say imagine doesn't mean it's made up, but it's in our minds. We, we, envision, we envision ourselves within a context. So think of it for a second. I use this example with students. I've never met and I never will meet everybody who is a Canadian. And yet, if I'm overseas or if I travel somewhere and I see the, a maple leaf on a backpack, I suddenly have this connection, right? There's this affinity to, oh, you, and then you ask where they're from and, you know, they're from, you know, some small town in Nova Scotia that I've never heard of. But it doesn't matter at that point. We have, we have a connection. It's about being connected or an affinity to something that is larger than ourselves. I think Anderson is, is helpful here. We could think of faith communities like this as well. Really, to be part of the church is to be part of an imagined community. It doesn't mean it's less real. We just don't know everybody um, face to face. Imagined communities share a memory of the past. And so there's some examples of, of the past that we'll, we'll draw on. Uh, but there's two words that I want us to think a little bit about. And this is where I would, I would inject a little bit of nuance. I would suggest that Canada, uh, a nation like Canada, has been deeply influenced by, or to use that phrase, the crater marks of where the gospel has shown up. It's been deeply influenced. I shy away as a historian uh, from the word heritage. I don't mind, you know, I can speak of my family heritage or, uh, or what have you. Heritage has a little bit of baggage of um, sort of there's this nostalgia attached to it. It's sort of bittersweet. And sometimes we can romanticize um, the, the past or romanticize where we're from, or romanticize all sorts of things. And so I use the word influence. So here's just a couple of images from Canada's past, and I hope I don't trigger any of you in Social Studies 9, but here we go. Um, a couple of images of Canada's past um, that have religious significance, that the crater marks of the gospel, or at the very least, Christian influences there. This is uh, Jacques Cartier. Uh, the founding of New France, 1534. Now, they didn't have cameras, so people uh, do depictions. They do paintings. Uh, and you can see in this image, this is uh, the fusion or the merging of political identity and religious identity. They're erecting a cross, which you get the cross image, and on it, it's, it speaks of the king of France. And so Canada, in one sense, is part of this project that was called Christendom, a kingdom of Christ. And so you would spread territory, you would gain territory, and you could literally draw it on a map. And so you have the claiming of territory. And there's, we can, I, could make, I could make this more uh, problematic. You can see individuals in the painting who are actually not part of that nation um, who were there already. And so you have this, uh, this component. And the Catholic Church plays a tremendous role in, in the forming of French Canada. The second image that I, I chose is uh, actually from my hometown. And uh, I've been in this building before. This is Christ Church Cathedral in Hamilton, Ontario. And I picked it not just because it's from my hometown, uh, but because it's actually, I didn't realize, it is one of the oldest houses of worship still standing in Canada. It's certainly the oldest, one of the oldest in English Canada, uh, built in the early 19th century. And English Canada is part of this, this larger Protestant world, this, uh, this really powerful uh, in 
influx that happens uh, after the Reformation uh, that spreads across Europe and then to all these satellites of which Canada was um, a colony. And so there's that image as well of um, these towering cathedrals. And if you, for those of you who travel across Canada, uh, BC, we're a little bit, bit, bit younger, uh, but all these places in Canada have these towering um, cathedrals or you see the spires and you know there's some, there's some legacy here. There was something here and a lot of them you go into and of course they do uh, sit so, uh, somewhat empty. They're not as full as they once were. Uh, or uh, much like the cathedrals of Europe, a lot of them are now sort of tourist destinations. Or as my uh, brother in Ottawa uh, introduced me, there was this, um, it was a decommissioned uh, church cathedral building, and uh, it's an arts venue, and they, they ho and, you know, they're turning them into condos and all sorts of things, um, but there's this architectural legacy. Two quick things, then I want to read the text with you. Um, couple books from my grad school days. I think they'll make it up here in the next slide. Um, the social order. It's more than just buildings. It's more than just heritage. Um, if you think of the development of our country, um, things like healthcare, the original hospitals, the role of education, uh, land development and how it was carved up, and certainly the social lives, everything from uh, recreation um, to, uh, to friendships and relationships, everything took place within the realm of the parish or the church, and uh, the church loomed large. Ministers, those who stood in the pulpit, um, they exuded not just religious authority, but political authority, and, uh, and sort of influenced the government in profound ways. Uh, historian Mark Knoll wrote a little book, uh, he's, a, he's an American historian, but he's fascinated by what was going on in Canada, wrote this little book called What Happened to Christian Canada. And uh, he, he traces, and I won't do it here, but he, he traces the, the rapid collapse of what he calls a Christian consensus. This was, sort of, this was just the way the world was in Canada. This is how it worked, uh, beginning uh, in the post-World War II era into the 1960s and uh, the transition of what Canada uh, became. So there's, we're entering a conversation that is nuanced. There's a conversation that many people have thought uh, very deeply about, far more deeply than I can go into this morning. But for, for our purposes, Jericho, I'd like to go back um, to that, uh, to the motto that's at the, at the base of our peace tower, that he would have dominion also from sea to sea. So if you have, a, if you have your Bible, I'll, it's also going to be up on our slightly smaller screen. I don't know if you noticed that. It's a little, little smaller today. Um, Psalm 72. And I thought it would be helpful to read uh, in context where our motto comes from and then offer uh, a little, just a, a, an angle that we might take to think through what does it mean to live faithfully? What does it mean to be um, a follower of Jesus in a society that has uh, a, a legacy, a, a heritage, if you will? I would call it a deep Christian influence. And what ought our response, uh, what should it be? This is a psalm of David, uh, or song uh, speaking of Solomon, and then it anticipates this future king. I want you to listen. Some of the, the, the songs we've been singing this morning about um, lordship and crowns and rulers, 
and we're going to and it's moving towards this idea of justice and it's all within the context of Psalm 72. So I'm going to read it in its entirety and uh, offer a few reflections. Psalm 72. Give your love of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all, and may the hills be fruitful. Help him to defend the king. Help him to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy, and to crush their oppressors. May they fear you as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon remains in the sky. Yes, forever. May the king's rule be refreshing like spring rain on freshly cut grass like the showers that water the earth. May all the godly flourish during his reign. May, may there be abundant prosperity until the moon is no more. May he reign from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Desert nomads will bow before him. His enemies will fall before him in the dust. The western kings of Tarshish and other distant lands will bring him tribute. The eastern kings of Sheba and Seba will bring him gifts. All kings will bow before him, and all nations will serve him. This king might sound familiar. He will rescue the poor when they cry to him, and he will help the oppressed who have no one to defend them. He feels the pity for the weak and the needy, and he will rescue them. He will redeem them from oppression and violence, and their lives are precious to him. Long live the king. May the gold of Sheba be given to him. May the people always pray for him and bless him all day long. May there be abundant grain throughout the land, flourishing even on the hilltops. May the fruit trees flourish like the trees of Lebanon, and may the people thrive like grass in a field. May the king's name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun shines. May all nations be blessed through him and bring him praise. Praise the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does such wonderful things. Praise his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. It's this beautiful, powerful weaving of bringing tribute to a king and the, the wealth and the prosperity of nations coming together, fused together with this cry for justice and that things would be put right. There is this anticipation of where it's going. And I'm, I'm overwhelmed in a sense that there would be some architects in the past of our own nation who would aspire to that. I think that I think that's beautiful and so I I don't want to I don't want to throw that away. I think there's something here for us as we anticipate what is going on. It's beautiful. It also mentions Israel. And so all of a sudden, it's all nations, all people, all over the world, um, the Lord, the fullness of the whole world brought before this king and then it mentions a very specific national entity. It suddenly mentions uh, this political, this ethnic, uh, and a specific particular tribe. And that's interesting to me. And it's not just any tribe, of course. It is that of Israel. Um, so I want to I zoom out and offer a couple things to, to think through how we, might, how we might approach this and then what it might mean for us sitting here in Canada in 2018. 
There's two sort of themes that I noticed that, that happen. There's many themes, but there's two that I want to sort of draw out as we use this um, text. Because the Bible and our, the- our, our series is what the Bible doesn't say, which really is saying how to use the Bible and how not to use the Bible how it can be used and how it can be abused. And this text, of course, has been used at many times in the past to justify the exact opposite of what we hear in Psalm 72. It has been, it has been weaponized. It's been used to oppress. It's been used to justify all sorts of evil in the name of God. But the themes that I see are that run from beginning to end are twofold. One is where the story begins and where the story ends. And that's why I alluded a little bit to some of our past teaching series so uh, you can sort of draw back on, on some, of the, some of the great teaching that we had here. The story begins in Genesis in a garden and it ends in the holy city, the new Jerusalem. There's another thread. That's this beautiful, this beautiful movement. The other thread that I got thinking about was this idea of tribes and nations and language groups, and that gets me to the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. And Babel is the scattering, right? God confuses and scatters uh, the families of the world and divides them. And there's this great reversal that happens, and that's in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when all of a sudden you have people hearing in their own language. And so I want to trace those two threads and say, where do the nations fit? Where does Canada fit? Legacy, influence, or not? What should be our hope? What should be our aspiration? So there's, there's uh, four ways to, to view this, or four quick things to see. In the garden, there's what's called the cultural mandate. You might remember this from Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful. It's a command. It's an imperative. And multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. And a little bit later on, we have the promise uh, out of that, which is interesting that this comes right after Babel, the scattering of all these nations. God suddenly talks to one nation, the national promise to Abram, who becomes Abraham, all the families, Genesis 12, 4, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. So God picks this particular nation, and through that nation is going to bless all peoples. And there's this tremendous vision halfway through the book in Isaiah that speaks of this future hope, this future city, and it's echoed in Revelation, and we did a wonderful series in Revelation about the holy city, Uh, and it says this, Isaiah 60, verse 1, arise Jerusalem, Zion, all nations will come to your light, mighty kings will come to see your radiance, your gates will stay open day and night, this is the future city. And this wonderful line from Revelation of the multinational, the multi-ethnic, the multilinguistic, redeemed people of God. And, the, and it, the praise in Revelation 5 says, And your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. So you have a scattering 
linguistic, ethnic, cultural division, this scattering, God confuses and God calls Abram and says he's going to bless a particular nation. God bless Israel. And it's out of that blessing, it's not meant ever to be this particular or unique for all time blessing or just to benefit Israel alone. It's that they ultimately, since the beginning, would be a blessing to all the nations. Uh, that struck me as profoundly hopeful, as you would see time and time again of Israel, this chosen nation, right? Like if ever there was a, to, you know, I'm going to speak back into the text, if ever there was a Christian nation, if ever there was a people of God that was a national entity, it's Israel. And at times that would get to their heads, they would forget. At times this brings them into captivity, at and the whole story but it's brought together the great reversal at Pentecost, the birth of the church. So I want to just uh, read, I think I have it up here, Acts 2. Uh, and this is the, the, the famous passage in Acts chapter 2, but it's the section right after that when the tongues of fire uh, come down and people are speaking all these different languages. This is what it says. This is the account. All the people around, they were completely amazed. How can this be? These people are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. And this is one of those texts where sometimes we just like skip through because it's like, okay, here's, it's either genealogy or it's a list of names that I'm going to butcher and I can't pronounce, right? But I think it's important for us to hear the national groups that are mentioned here. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas around Libya, around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans, and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things that God has done. People redeemed from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, enter the holy city. Heaven comes down in Revelation 21. This captivating vision that is in Revelation and this vision that's also uh, the prophet Isaiah speaks uh, profoundly about, it's, it's this prophetic vision, dream, I don't fully uh, get it, and some of the stuff I read I don't, I don't fully understand, but there was a moment of clarity for me, and I was sitting, I don't even know where I was, somewhere deep in Uganda, and I had this book with me, and this is what I read. It's called, uh, oh, next slide, uh, Richard Mao, he's a, a Christian philosopher and, and theologian, uh, wrote this little volume. It's, it's not this long, it's more of a meditation. I found it beautiful. It's called, When the Kings Come Marching In. It's Isaiah and his vision of the New Jerusalem. And he says this, I'm going to quote him at length and then bring it back to 2018. People boast about the nations of which they are citizens. They also boast about ethnic identities, religious affiliations, race, gender, and clan. They point in pride to natural wonders they claim as their own possessions. This land was made for you and me. They show off their military might, their economic clout, their material abundance. The Lord of hosts has a day against all of these things, against nations who brag about being number one, against racist pride, against the idealizing of human potential, 
against our reliance on missiles and bombs, against trade centers and computer banks, against throne rooms and presidential memorabilia. In short, God will stand in judgment of all idolatrous and prideful things. Uh, lost my prideful attachments to military, technological, commercial, and cultural might. He will destroy all those rebellious projects that glorify oppression, exploitation, and the accumulation of possessions. It is in such projects that we can discern today our own ships of Tarshish and cedars from Lebanon. Just pause there for a second. It's the second time I've said Tarshish. You might remember this place. This where Jonah. Remember, he was trying to catch a ship to go to Tar to get away from where God had called him to go. Not everybody agrees whether this is a literal place, an actual place. Sometimes it can mean just far and distant lands. Other times it means um, places of of rebellion that are against God. And these ships show up in Isaiah's vision. The ships of Tart carrying their wealth um, from faraway places, and they show up in the holy city. And the cedars from Lebanon, they actually adorn the, the holy temple. And so what Richard Mao is saying is we should discern what our, our, in our society, in our culture, and he's mentioned some of them, what are some things that might be used in idolatrous or oppressive ways? And it talks about destruction, but it talks about destruction in restorative ways. And this is how Mao ends. He says, but the stuff of human cultural rebellion will nonetheless be gathered into the holy city. God still owns the filling. The earth, including the American military and French art and Chinese medicine and Nigerian agriculture, all of it belongs to the Lord. And he will reclaim all of these things, harnessing them for service in the city. So I want to take an example of, of where this is often used. And when I, when I did a Google image search on this, of course, uh, it is the stars and stripes, this you know, star-spangled banner that comes up. But you get, get the idea. Oftentimes, uh, nationalism can confuse this restoration that I've been speaking about out of Isaiah and Revelation. Nationalism sometimes confuses this restoration, that there'll be a national revival or that we need to go back to some um, era when we were more faithful. And while it's not untrue, I would suggest it might be misguided. This is often quoted out of Second Chronicles, and I've seen this stitched on goodness knows what and on mugs and t-shirts and who knows. Second uh, Chronicles 7, 14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. And it's beautiful, but I want to challenge our reading of it sometimes. It's how we, how we read this. Who are my people? Whose land are we talking about? And this is, I actually, um, I had to make a, a late night phone call last night. I had a Hebrew emergency. Um, I had to phone my mom, who is uh, a Hebrew, she's an Old Testament scholar. She would not call herself that. Uh, retired uh, from a career in healthcare and uh, went back and just out of interest and, and desiring to, to study the scriptures more, uh, did some Old Testament work. So she learned Hebrew. And so I phoned my mom and I said, Mom, there's something about this idea of the fullness of the earth being filled and full. 
And so she looked it up because I don't actually read Hebrew. And that line in Genesis 1 about be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, that's in, my mom affirms, she says, that's an imperative. That's a command. Fill the earth. Fill it, yes, with people, but fill it with cultural goods. And those are the goods that get brought into the holy city. And I was thinking about how do I answer that? Who are my people? Whose land are we talking about? Are we sometimes misusing this text if we're praying for national revival? And it took me to Psalm 24, verse 1, that says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Or I have to go King James for this one because it uses the word, and this is what, um, what triggered in my mind. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So I speak English. I was like, fill and fullness. And so I said, Mom, is that the same word? And she says, yeah, the one is the imperative and the other is just sort of the noun, the fullness, stuff that's like full. So it's there in the Hebrew. Um, and I think sometimes we might use the wrong analogy. I think sometimes we might assume that we are Israel when in fact we may be Babylon. We might be Rome. We might be the Egyptians. It's who you read yourself into the text. What do I need to hear? What, is the, what, what would the Bible have for me? What would it be uh, t saying to me? Am I part of the chosen people or am I one of the oppressors? And I have to be aware of that at times and, and sort of this idea of checking our, our priv privilege or our blind spots to maybe we're reading ourselves into the hero narrative of the story when the bias of the Bible is always from uh, the oppressed the poor, uh, the underclass, and as was very evident to me and to Denise as we traveled the world and arrived back in Vancouver this week, very evident uh, that, and I tell this to students all the time, we won life's lottery in a sense, in, in the, the power and the privilege and the level of comfort we have. And I think the Bible calls us not to sort of rest on our laurels, but calls us to be aware of where we might be the oppressor, where we might be part of the empire. So a couple quick things. Um, about, I spoke about nostalgia, and as, as I wrap up and leave us with something to think about, um, I thought of a couple of images, and I have to confess, I actually kind of like these images because uh, it's sort of like comfort food to me in some way, um, but I want to critique them. The first, uh, this is Norman Rockwell. There it is. Um, I grew up in a, a Norman Rockwell house. We had these on like plates and on like, they were like everywhere, and I like them. Like there's something comforting about them. This is Norman Rockwell's called Sane Grace. And there's this sort of this nostalgia to maybe a simpler time, uh, to a, a time when people were more faithful, and that somehow we as a nation have lost that. Uh, the second one is, uh, and again, this is sort of like, you know, air your unpopular opinion. I'm, I think I'm supposed to hate these things. I don't actually, Thomas Kincaid, you know, the painter of light trademark or whatever, uh, I don't actually hate these things. I mean, maybe you have some of them. I don't actually dislike them. Um, they're a little bit cheesy. Uh, this one's called Streams of Living Water. Look at that pastoral scene and this beautiful country church. And I mean, Streams of Living Water, who doesn't want that? It's beautiful. Um, 
But this can tug at us that, oh my goodness, we've lost something, that maybe we don't have this anymore, and maybe our energy should be in restoring this uh, sort of pastoral, idyllic vision of a North American past, whatever that would look like. Um, there was a, a book that came out that I read not long ago um, that challenged a lot of this um, by a sociologist named Robert Jones called The End of White Christian America. And uh, he was really documenting the, the demographic shift that's taking place, um, particularly in the United States, but across North America. And his argument, I agree with some of it and, and leave other parts of it, is that the political and legislative agenda or the focus of people who, and I'll, I say this to a very diverse class when I'm speaking, people who look like me tend to gravitate towards. It becomes a last stand, or I'll use his words, this is quite potent, he referred to some of the political activity happening in his own country um, by people who profess the name of Christ um, to be a death rattle of their own demographic and what's, what's happening and changing in their nation. I don't know if we want to, to focus on just being a death rattle and uh, looking for a political uh, messiah. That might sound familiar. So I leave us a little more hopeful, and that is with this global perspective. And I found this image, uh, I found this chart, and this is profound. You can see the shift in Christians by percentage in the global north and the global south over time where that's been. And for most of the history, most of the period that I teach, most of the, um, the development of where Canada has come from, it has been biased, of course, towards the global north or what we would call Western civilization. And that is rapidly changing. And so while we, there might be the sense of fear or we're losing something or a distinctive or the influence in our own lands, um, the global Christian story is, uh, when you frame it, is something quite different and quite exciting. So I leave us with this. If the central idea is that Canada was in its past, is, or should be a Christian nation, it can lead us to a nostalgic or romanticized gaze backwards upon our past. And I think, yeah, I found this, this is a postcard, picturesque Mahone Bay, South Shore, Nova Scotia. You can see three churches featured prominently in this little tiny community. Um, it alters where our hope should be. Rather than in Christ, it gets put into election cycles or Supreme Court decisions or political leaders or a legislative agenda as being our highest uh, uh, priority or that will ultimately give us salvation. Now, of course, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't, our theology, we'd say that's not really, I don't believe that, our, our uh, salvation. But that's where we are ultimately putting our trust. The scriptures say some trust in horses and chariots, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. A Christianized nation should, uh, should actually be a byproduct, not the goal. So I'm not here to, to sort of slam on our Christian legacy or its influence, but that our focus should be not only global, but it should be forward thinking to um, the future City. So I called this sermon, I was, you know, I think this came out in my jet lag. I called it Maple Syrup in the New Jerusalem. <laughs> what cultural goods does Canada bring into the holy city? 
So probably it would be those things you see at the airport, you know, like the little maple syrup. Uh, we will probably provide the maple syrup. Maybe even some of the craft beer. That would be good too. But here's the final point. God saves a people. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has become the God of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Romans, and yes, the Canadians. The redeemed people of God are from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Early in the redemptive work in the story of the scriptures, God used Joshua, and we actually sang this morning already, uh, this command that Joshua gives to the people of Israel, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And so my question to you is this, and we'll bring our, our team up to uh, respond in some song. My question to you is this, what is your primary allegiance? You can have more than one, but which one is your primary allegiance? And secondly, and I think this is where we're headed to in song and into response, what does this mean for you? What does this mean for me? Do you heed God's justice call, the call of the oppressed, the widow, the orphan? Because it is never far, friends, in the scriptures when we speak of God's grandeur and magnitude and reigning from sea to sea, and the, all, all the power and all of the wealth of the nations, the maple syrup from Canada, all of that brought before his throne, it is never far in the scriptures when it talks about the, heart, the, the, the pulsing heart of God for justice. And so I conclude, and then we're going to sing and enter a time of, of response and song, and there's a, a time for prayer, and there's availability of prayer. Uh, we have our, our prayer team as well to think about where do you fit in all of this, and do you heed the justice call? Psalm 72.1 says this, give your love of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. So, Father, that's my prayer for us this day. And as we enter into a time, even in our own wonderful country of Canada, of celebrating the freedoms that you uh, have enabled to exist here, I thank you for the profound legacy and influence of your gospel through the pages of, of our own past. Lord, would you give us a global view? Lord, would you uh, enable us to see beyond our own national self-interest that your kingdom is of many tribes, many people, many languages from all over the world? And would you give us a heart for your heart, which is for justice, to reign. We pray uh, to that end, and we pray for that better day that we know is coming. In Jesus' powerful name, amen.